People are searching for answers. From baby boomers to millennials to Gen X, Y, and Z, where is God? Does God exist? Where is the proof? Why should I believe the Bible? No matter if you are a follower of Jesus or not, most people in the world can see and feel the chaos all around us. Even the global doomsday clock, orchestrated by scientists, have moved the timer up to 100 seconds before midnight. All the more reason we need answers now. Because if the Bible is accurate, ultimately eternal destinations will be decided. Join us now as we uncover the facts concerning Jesus, the Bible, and the questions that demand answers in Critical Thinking, God, and the Bible. Hello, everybody. My name is Mark. You're watching and listening to The Russick Outlook. Thank you very much for joining. Today's topic, critical thinking, God, and the Bible. I am specifically gearing this towards unbelievers. I am putting myself in the shoes of somebody who may be sitting on the fence, thinks there's God out there, or, or maybe you're an atheist and you don't believe in God at all. I'm trying to address your questions um, there, there are so many people who, who go out there and say there's not enough, enough evidence to verify the veracity of Christ, the veracity of Scripture, and I believe overwhelmingly there is, but I want to present this in a very kind, respectful manner because I believe eternity is at stake. I, I, I have no question in my mind, so I'm approaching this with all respect in the world for any and all questions that people may have. Uh, and I believe that, that the Bible, if it is the, you know, uh, the divine inspired word of God, which it claims to be, it should be able to back it up. So that's why, or that's how the, uh, I'm approaching it. I'll be looking at it from a number of different areas. I'll be drawing upon source, numerous sources well outside of the Bible, scientific areas well outside of the Bible that corroborate the Bible. So if you are a skeptic or a non-believer, I ask if you just sit with an open mind, hear what I have to say. If you're a Christian, please take note. I, I, I promise you there's a lot of information in here that you may not be aware of, you may not have heard before, or maybe framed in the manner that, that I have. Um, I, I, on that note, as I said, I'm approaching from a number of different topics, but I'm also uh, approaching a number of different areas. For the people, uh, for, for the sake of if you need to kind of draw back on this, uh, I've uh, created chapters or subtopics. They'll be listed in the description of whatever platform you're watching or listening on, um, as well as there'll be video slates on there. Uh, you know, for instance, we'll get to pretty quickly um, how we receive the Bible. Uh, what are some of the other areas? The uniqueness of the Bible. We're going to touch on evolution. We're going to touch upon the different sciences. Uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm saying well, we're putting Jesus on trial, both his life and the resurrection. Uh, some of the other areas, prophecy, hell, Israel. So a, a, again, I, I just ask, sit back, listen with an open mind, watch with an open mind, you know, dig deeper into any of the information I present. 
And if you have any questions or comments, just, and I'll probably say it at the end, please email russicoutlook at gmail.com. I'm happy to do it. I'll just close by quickly asking if you're listening or watching on whatever platform, if you wouldn't mind hitting the like and the subscribe button. Um, We've started to link a lot of our videos up through uh, Rumble as well as YouTube. We're on all the podcast platforms. We'll be building, we are building a new website, which we'll be launching in early November. So we're very excited about that. Last, if you couldn't, if you wouldn't mind, go to the Russick Outlook and join our email list. I want to get right into this. I don't want to, I don't want to say waste time. I want to give you information, but there's so much information. I will tell you this is going to be the longest video I've ever done, but I think it's worth it. I think because I have the utmost hope for you, the listener, the watcher, uh, the viewer, uh, that, that I wanted to unpack every area that I could, including headlines right up until today. I'll be drawing information that are in the headlines. I'm recording this in October of 2022, mid-October. I'll be drawing upon headlines over the last few weeks that bear witness to what the Bible has to say. That's how, uh, that's how wide a gap that I, or wide a net that, I'm, uh, that I'll be casting, if you will. So let me get into this. All right. Critical thinking, uh, because it's it's really what I want, what I'm hoping for is that you will approach this uh, from an intellectually disciplined process of skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluating information. Uh, I, I I have a, um, a slide up here to think about things differently. So I'm, this is what I'm asking. If, if you are a skeptic, just, you know, see if you can shift your paradigm and, and hopefully... Uh, you, you you will be appreciative, if not convinced, of the information that will be brought forth. Um, the definition further goes on to say, generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. Why does this matter? As I said, eternity is at stake as well as the direction of your life today. So this is no small matter. Um, I'm, I'm going. To, I want to state something up front because I, I really do... I think it's important. Um, there are 7.8 billion people in the world today. And uh, what's the breakdown? 2.4 billion are Christian, 4.2 billion are other religions, meaning Muslim, uh, um, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, and, and so forth, um, Judaism, and, and other religions. Um, and then 1.2 billion are unaffiliated. So that could include agnostics, atheists, and, and, you know, and, and others. But what I want to get at first and foremost is the vast majority of the world believes in God, whether you believe in, in, in your, uh, your faith is a, a Muslim or, or, or a Jew or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian. But my point is most people inherently know that, that we have been put on the earth for a reason, and I'm going to get into that. Um, but nonetheless, 1.2 billion people that are potentially uh, mostly atheists or agnostics, that this is what I want to address. And I want to just take note of, and this just came out over a few weeks ago, there are 15 million Jews. The reason I want to highlight this up front is we're going to be getting into some areas that's very, very important, which concerns the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. So 7.8 billion is the population, 15 million are Jews. First topic I want to hit is how we receive the Old Testament. We're also going to look at how we receive the New Testament. And the reason that that's so important, it, you know, is if we're going to draw upon it, 
Well, people need to know how do, how do we how do we get to this point? And I think that's more than fair. Um, so, again, if you're following me on video, I'm showing you the yellow highlight here. The word cannon means measuring rod. So there was a measuring rod, a criteria of which people uh, derive this information. This was completed in Babylon by a council of 120 men with Ezra as president. It was notated by Josephus, who's a very credible and no, uh, famous historian. Um, before a book can be canonized, uh, the council demanded the, the criteria of divine inspiration. It is worthwhile to note that Jesus and the, the apostles quoted the Old Testament over 600 times. Remember, there was no New Testament. Um, you know, th this, is, this was the Bible and is the Bible, uh, but, but I, I want to get that out because a lot of times even Christians will say, well, you know, the Old Testament is, is an outdated book or it was written by, you know, people from thousands of years ago. It doesn't have relevance today. Nothing could be further from the truth, and you'll see why as we move this along. Uh, the translation took forth, it's called the Septuagint. It was translated uh, from the Hebrew Old Testament uh, to, to Greek in Alexandria, Egypt. There were 70 scholars. So I, I guess my point here is, I'm sorry, um, my point here is there's a great degree of uh, effort and credibility and respect went towards putting putting the Bible together and how uh, it potentially met that criteria. There's a large number of books that people, and even some books that are no, uh, quoted in the Bible or notated in the Bible, did not make the cut, so to speak. So I, I just want to emphasize the fact that the translation went forth into Greek, and you'll see why in a second how we can... Um, how that has been authenticated. So let me jump to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me put this up on video for you. The Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered in the late 40s. And long story short, actually, before I even do that, let me just set the, set the stage. There was some uh, Bedouin in the uh, um, late 40s, and it was brought forth into the early 50s. All of the Old Testament was discovered with uh, the exception of the Book of Esther, and uh, they, they were discovered in caves, and it was called the Qumran Caves. It was a sect of people. But the, the important point here is it was authenticated as the translation was within 98% accuracy of what we read in our King James Bible today. So the translation went forth. Even conservatively, you can say that this was uh, written 100 to 200 years before the birth of Jesus. So... The, although the books themselves, the authors were, you know, uh, upwards of maybe five, six, seven, eight hundred and over a thousand years uh, earlier than that. But the writings of these translations took forth conservatively by scientific estimations. This is a scientific and a historical and an archaeological discovery. And this is how they treated it because, you know, obviously documents thousands of years old. But at any rate, they found them. It was, uh, um, I, I believe, a sheep herder or a goat herder or a young boy brought them home to his his father and they eventually sold. But um, you, you, you can see them, um, I believe, uh, you know what, I'm not sure. I, I know I saw them. There was a tour that they did of a lot of the documents in uh, New York several, oh gosh, I guess it was about 10 years ago. But at any rate, my point here is that, you know, 
this verifies the translation of what we read today. And so let me just put this up real quick. You know, just to give you some other information, uh, the, the dating methods included paleographic, scribal, and carbon-14. The scrolls were written during that period of 200 to 100 BC, as I already notated. Um, they include the oldest known surviving copies of biblical extra documents. Um, by that, I mean uh, um, that there, there are other books, as I said, I referred to earlier, Enoch, Jasher, um, and, and uh, some of the others. But all of that was found around these caves or in these Qumran caves in, in Israel. Now, how did we get to the New Testament? Well, really the same criteria w w was brought forth. Uh, from the start of the early church, they used the Old Testament in the services, uh, uh, as I said earlier. When the New Testament uh, books were completed, they were given the same respect as the prophets of Moses uh, that, that were used along with the Old Testament scriptures. This is important here. In 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul quotes from Luke 10.7, citing this as scripture. He regarded Luke's gospel as scripture before he wrote 2 Timothy. That's important because of he, he gives the, the, the uh, in, in the scripture, he says that all, all scripture is divinely inspired, um, but also remember Luke of, of how this was considered uh, um, part of the Bible because Luke is going to play an important role in, in some of the information that I'm going to bring forth down the road. So again, it was given that same criteria uh, I, I give you a, a bunch of other information in terms of Constantine and how he rolled this out. It was joined with the Old Testament books, but that same credibility was given. Uh, the test of canonicity, which is what it's called, uh, it was written by, this is what it had to do. It was written by an apostle or a close associate. Does it agree with the doc doctrine of the Lord and his apostle? Is it genuine in regard to the facts, the dates of the writings and the authors, and was it accepted in the early church? So again, very important there is the historical records. They need to match up. Do the dates match up? So information that was brought forth in the Bible, we there's cross-reference, in other words, to the historical uh, documentation. And, and, and that becomes important, and you'll see as we go along. The Bible in and of itself is incredibly unique. And what do I mean by that? So let me cut to this. The, what I'm calling the uniqueness of the Bible. It is the number one selling, best-selling book of all time every year. They took it off of the bestsellers uh, list be, be, because it, it, it's, every year it's the same thing. Um, but my point here is the, 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 the degree of which this book has been honored and vilified. Um, if you were to go into an underground church in China today or Iran or some other hostile nations towards Christianity— People will cling to this book. They'll cleave to it. And at the same time, if you're caught with it, you could be potentially murdered or if, if, or if you're encouraging the scriptures. So it's, it's that volatile uh, of a document, of a book. Um, you know, I, I, I cite here that the history of mankind's reaction to the Bible. No other book has been so loved or hated by so many. It's been adored and read by millions over the century, easily making it the best-selling book of all time, including all of the different translations. Uh, what's even more remarkable is how it stood the test of time by having to survive through persecution. Many times, nations would try to burn it. Um, uh, you know, even today, they're, 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 the Bible is burned. Uh, sadly, I'm an American, 
and, and people will burn it in, in, in America. Uh, from the Roman Empire to, to the communist and the Islamic nations. It, uh, 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 it was scrutinized, it was vilified, um, but yet it's loved, it's adorned, it's considered in such high esteem. So in other words, the different spectrums is really what I'm getting at. The other important things, or other important things that I'm going to break down is, uh, the, the how do you explain all of this? And what I mean by this is, Consider the Bible is written over a 1,500-year span uh, that includes 66 books and 39 authors. So 1,500 years, most of these people didn't know one another. Uh, They never came in contact with one another. People may have been familiar with their readings over time. But 1,500 years, 66 books, 39 authors, and the consistency of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation is prevalent it, 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 it is really the redemption of, of mankind by Jesus. How do you possibly explain the continuity of all these people and all these different walks of life? Kings, military leaders, peasants, physicians, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds, all different areas. Uh, from Genesis through Revelation, the subjects were treated with the degree of harmony, yet still maintain one single unfolding theme, God's redemption of human beings. The paradise lost in Genesis becomes the paradise regained in, in Revelation. The leading character throughout claims to be the one true living God made known as Jesus Christ. So that in and of itself, and let, let me give you some other information here, again, on video. Um the, the Bible runs the emotion through through the entire human spectrum. Joy, valleys of sorrow, despair, times of certainty and conviction, yet other times of confusion and doubt. It was written in a whole variety of literary styles, poetry, historical nar- narrative, a song, romance, personal correspondence, memoir, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and allegory. And then the subjects, it doesn't shy away from anything. Um, marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, adultery, obedience to, to authority, truth-telling, lying, character development, parenting, the nature and the revelation of God. So this symmetry is, in and of itself, without question, to me, proves the veracity of Scripture, but we're going to dig so much further than this. But you cannot possibly explain how, you know, we, we, we have the the... the the authenticity, as I, as I said before, of, of the Bible, we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Old Testament, we're going to get into the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So all of this, you can't possibly tell me that you know this could happen without these people ever knowing one another, yet again, and, and measuring against the canonization rules that were stated earlier. So I'm going to shift gears for a minute because I think this is important, particularly for people who may be atheists. And perhaps you believe in evolution. I'm going to uh, kind of pair this as evolution or creation. So in doing so, let me just first start with this. How did we get here? Every person on earth, I don't care if you're an atheist or an agnostic or a believer or not, you inevitably ask yourself several specific questions. They may come from a variety of stages of life. They're often repeated due to the need to readjust or change your initial conclusion based upon new information. The questions that you and billions of people over 
all of world history, they're consistent with one another. The symmetry is not impugned by geographical origin, cultural diversity, or even education or financial background. They all represent an inherent desire to know and understand the meaning of this truth. What are the questions? Who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? What am I here for? Who put me here? Does God exist? If so, who is God? Does God have a plan for me? What is that plan? So, you know, if that in and of itself kind of flies in the face of evolution because evolution will state that, um, you know, we are here by a series of mutations that are, are accidental in nature. So let's get into the origins of the universe and the origins of life as stated by science. Um, universities uh, have accepted these standards. The universe was created approximately 20 billion years ago. Some may say 15, but you get the idea. This occurred from the random cosmic explosion of a subatomic ball that hurled uh, through space, time, matter, and energy in all directions. In other words, the Big Bang. The entire universe came from an initial speck of infinite density, known as singularity. It appeared from nowhere for no reason, only to explode suddenly. Over a period of some 10 billion years, this newly created space, time, matter, and energy evolved into remarkably designed and fully functional stars, galaxies, and planets, and our home planet, Earth. So that in and of itself is kind of hard to really get your hand head wrapped around when you understand how did this happen and you know and, and I'm not even talking about life yet um, so then from this cosmic explosion uh, you, you have the textbooks who are saying that organic life sprung up from non-organic matter that's something we've never been able to do never in all your scientific experiments we cannot replicate that today so the original life that evolved is more into more complex life forms through a natural process of random mutations and natural selections. In other words, random matter randomly acted on matter for a longer period of time, creating everything that we see today. I'm not trying to be sarcastic when, when I say this, but if you think faith in God is something that, that that's just too hard to get your head wrapped around... When you really break this down, this means our ancestors are rocks. So I'm sitting here recording this in front of you, in front of a camera and a microphone, uh, but I came from a rock. It's it's really, really hard. So what are these questions? What are the questions that this would naturally generate? Everybody and anybody would say this. How can nothing explode? Where did the matter and the energy come from? What caused its release? How did this explosion order itself? How can simplicity become com complex? Where did, the, where did the chemical elements come from? Let me just give you a few more. Um, how did life come from a rock, as I said? How does a bird become a lizard? We can't do that today. Why don't we see birds and lizards come today? Why are there no transitional fossils in the museums today? This is so important. Even Darwin himself said, if the fossil records do not bear what his, uh, his theory was, the theory of evolution, I say that because when I was growing up in school, it was displaced or, or it was put in the books as a theory, and over the last 30 years somehow became fact with, with, with no new information, but I digress. 
Darwin himself stated the fossil record must prove it. It does not. If, if all of this is true, we would see zillions and zillions and trillions and trillions of fossils all around the world giving us this information of transition. In other words, and the only thing that happens is they will try to piecemeal some things here or there. And some of this has even been proven to be on the black market because people are trying to sell hoaxes. So we, the fossil record does not back that up. In addition, uh, when Darwin um, uh, first brought forth this this uh, theory in, in the mid nineteenth uh, century, you know the human cell was considered a blob. Now we understand the intricacies of it. It's it, it's a machine. It's a mech. It's a such a sophisticated mechanism. Our bodies are you know our organs, and, and we'll get into a little bit of that too. So uh, by his standards. And what we know today is, is night and day. So, you know, I, I say all that with all due respect. If, if you're going to go down the road of evolution, at least have the intellectual capacity to say this is a theory. And I, and I wish that they would treat it as a theory in the textbooks today. Unfortunately, even on the university level, they, they do not. And sadly, and we'll get into some of the uh, other scientists here, sadly, if you do not ascribe to the theory of evolution, then you are considered uh, or, or mocked at or put down. And, and I know professors who have been removed from tenure uh, because of papers and books that they or or thesis that they put forth that that deny evolution and and do so with a credible degree of evidence. Let me also break this down. This is important too. If you look at evolutionary theory, it has seven different phases. There's something called cosmic evolution, stellar evolution, chemical, planetary, organic, macro, and micro. So cosmic is the development of space, time, matter, and energy, and it came from nothing. Stellar is the development of stars from the chaotic first elements. Remember that explosion. Chemical evolution uh, d depends upon elements coming from an original two. So from that two stem forth its own evolution of itself. Um, the development of the planetary systems and swirling elements. And you're going to see some information very shortly that will really leave you in amazement, I think. Uh, the development of organic life from inorganic matter, the development of one kind of life from a totally different kind of life. Uh, and then microevolution, that's something we can agree on. Science can bear this out today. If you go into the labs or you look around the world today, you, we can see the development of variations of species within the same kind. Um, if, if you are, let's say, for, for instance, I, I'm personally, I'm a, I'm a big animal lover. So dogs and all the different varieties and species of dogs or cats or birds and, you know. Um, so we can see that readily all around us. Those other six stages we've never seen before. It's never been documented and we can't replicate it. So we cannot even replicate what we're told to believe happened 15, 20 billion years ago. So it, it's, it's hard to get your head wrapped around this. So this, the, the books and, and the other related communications, which means videos, museums, lectures, podcasts, concede that only the seventh phase, microevolution, has been observed and documented. Um, so you, you must assume the first six phases of evolution in order to get at the seventh phase and, and, and believe in evolution by itself. My next topic is science or the Bible. And 
by that I mean, and, and I'm not saying don't believe in science. As a matter of fact, I, I will tell you the exact opposite. Um, I have a high degree of respect as a, as a, a, a kid in school and high school. Uh, I excelled in certain areas of science. I love science. But what people that I see, a lot of the arguments are, well, the Bible is not scientific. Um, the Bible is not a scientific primer. However, as you'll see, and I'll show you shortly, uh, there is so much information that science has bore out, but the Bible stated thousands of years before we even had the technology to verify it. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a second. I'm going to uh, get into creation in Genesis very, very briefly. I'm going to put something up on a video here. Um, if you look at the creation process, and I'm sure most people know understand the beginning of Genesis 1, but from a scientific standpoint, if you were looking at it, it provides two important factors. It states the initial condition, and it provides a frame of reference. It also provides information as it relates to man. So I give you the 10 steps. I'm not going to go through them all. Again, they're on video here. But I wanted to highlight a few of them. Um, it, it, step three says, Let there be expanse between the waters to separate water from water. The development of the hydraulic cycle. Uh, step four, let the water under the sky gather to one place and let dry ground appear, the formation of land and sea. At this point, science agrees that it states that there were a tremendous amount of seismic activity uh, with volcanoes and earthquakes. And today, science agrees that the ratio of land to water is the exact percentage that allows the number of living species in the earth today. So there you see science lining up with what Genesis laid out. Um, the, the land producing vegetation, seed bearing plants and, and trees. Um, this agrees with the light that's necessary to generate the carbon dioxide that is required to sustain life today. So, you know, there, there you have, and again, I, I, you know, you can go back to the video. I, I laid out 10 other steps and gave you the background. Next, I want to just very quickly go to DNA. DNA was not discovered until, I think, early 1950s. It is a sophisticated code. Um, it is a, a biological system that, uh, that needs the genetic information to build the protein blocks. In other words, all of our organs and tissues and whatnot, we have a certain uh, um, alignment of, of protein blocks. But there's, there's information behind there that tells how to line those blocks up. And that is called our, our, our DNA. So the question becomes from an evolutionary standpoint, where did the code come from to line all of those uh, proteins up? And this code is far more sophisticated than anything we could ever possibly imagine. Uh, you know, the, the, the biggest machines, computers today don't even come close to the degree of sophistication that is written in your body. You and everybody else in the world, as you know, you know, uh, um, they, they will use this to detect uh, or use it as a method to detect, uh, uh, break down crimes. What is your DNA? Your DNA is unique. It's, it's unlike anything else in the world today. So let me just give you a little bit of a highlight. Um, and so for every cell in the body, the information is contingent on the selection and the arrangement and the patterns of four DNA chemicals. There are 20 different types of uh, amino acids and 30,000 different types of proteins. The full component of human DNA has more than 3 billion sequences. The entire sequence is called a genome. 
Now, here's some information, just kind of get ready. So for for you older folk, if you remember new, uh, phone books and what was in them, if you're younger, you're probably not familiar with it, but um, a New York City, uh, uh, here, let me just, if <laughs> a New York City phone book was probably about this big and this thick, and they, they were able to verify that a uh, the amount of code that you have uh, in one genome could fill 200 uh, 1,000-page New York City telephone directories. Uh, the the complete 3 billion-base human genome would take 3 gig- gigabytes of storage. For those of you who are little tech aficionados or, uh, um, you know, you're, you're familiar with what, what I mean by that. Uh, if you unwrap all of the DNA in your cells, you could fill the entire Grand Canyon 78 times. You and you alone. That's the degree of sophistication of, of code that's in you. Uh, if you unru- if you unpacked it all, you can go back and forth to the sun 600 times. That's how much DNA information code is in your body that makes you unique. So again, going back to evolution, where did all that code come from? I'm going to say that that code came from your maker, your creator, my opinion. Um, let me just highlight a couple of things because, as I said, one of the reasons I wanted to touch on this is... Um, People will argue that the Bible is not scientific, so I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, I'm going to cite some things here. I, I brought out 21 different examples, scientific examples of what how the Bible agrees with it. Um, and I highlighted in yellow, if you're following me on video, of things that were written in the Bible thousands of years before we even had the technology to discover it. The earth floats in free space. Creation is made of particles indiscernible to our eyes. And for my podcast listeners, I give you the scriptures that bear this out. The specifications of the ark, we even use that in boats today. The darkness of the ocean floor contains springs. We couldn't have gotten down to the bottom of the ocean or, you know, the depths of the ocean until maybe the 40s or the 50s uh, where we had the technology to get that low. There are mountains on the bottom of the ocean. Jonah verified that. Black holes, dark matter anticipated, light can be divided. Scripture assumes a a revolving earth. Light travels in a path. The sun goes in a circuit. Uh, Circumcision on the eighth day is ideal. How did we, you know, medical science bears this out today. And yet the Lord instructed Moses back then. So all of these things bear, bear witness to what the Bible says. So Again, if somebody says to you that the Bible is not scientific, I would point out these scriptures in and of itself, I think, again, uh, would not only give the credibility to to the Bible, but how did these people know this? How did people know these things in space when there was no aircraft? There was no aircraft or anything to get around until the 20th century. So, you know, it had to come from something divine, something supernatural, something outside of time, you know, as, as we understand it. The other thing I wanted to point out here is intelligent design scientists. There are many highly uh, educated uh, uh, scientists who will, what, what's called the intelligent design movement, and they don't necessarily come out and, and support the Bible, but they do support the fact that there is an entity that is, uh, has created the universe with us in mind, with mankind in mind specifically. Um, I gave you some of them here. Stephen Meyer, Michael Bay. Let me just put this back up on video for a second. Um, I, I cited three books here that I, I, I think are, are wonderful. 
uh, the design inference, meaning, uh, well, I, I, I won't get it down, but um, it, it goes into the mathematics of design and creation. It's just incredible. The privileged planet really gets into not only um, the, the, the solar systems, but also the uniqueness and the credibility of the viability of mankind to sustain life on Earth. And then Darwin's Dilever, Dilemma um, by Stephen Meyer. Again, other scientists here, um, these, these are PhD doctorates. These are highly educated scientists. I, I encourage you to look them up. Whether you're a believer or non-believer, I think these people are incredibly um, interesting in, in, their, in their approach and how they present information. Let me shift gears towards the fine-tuning of the universe, and then we'll graduate out of our scientific uh, areas. There are laws and constants of the universe. Um, I, I think everybody understands the law of gravitational force, speed of light, electron mass, proton mass, etc. But the specificity of these laws operating in the manner of which they do uh, defies any type of human logic. For instance, if you did not have gravity to pull matter together, we would not have the planet, stars, or complex organisms. If we do not have a strong nuclear force, there would be nothing to hold protons and neutrons together. Thus, we would have no atoms in chemistry. If we did not have electromagnetic force, there would be no bonding between chemicals. There would be no light, and the list goes on and on. A, a much deeper case can be made by stating all of these principles must be in place together. Otherwise, you could wipe out any one of these principles and you eliminate life itself. So in other words... All you have these 30 laws, and they're dependent upon, not only are these laws by themselves defy any type of human logic or mathematical deductions, but they need one another. So in other words, they're all linked, these mathematical and laws of physics are linked and depend upon one another. So again, defying evolution. Um, Here's another thing that uh, at the atomic level, the strong nuclear force binds atoms together. If the strength of this force were to de decrease by one part in 10,000, were to decrease by one part in 10,000 billion, 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 or, and it gives you, you know, I gave you the numbers here on the video, the only element left in the universe would be hydrogen. Chemical life would not be possible. Remember, there is, a, that's only one uh, that is, that's three out of 30 different laws. So I've, I've not even gone into 27 other laws. But let me, let, let me go on with some other information. If we were to measure the possibility of, of gravity, if I took gravity and I, and I measured it across the universe from one end of the universe to the other with a, with a ruler, okay? And if I moved, so whatever that equation is, so let's say that gravity sits within seven inches and eight inches. I'm making this up for, for example. But if you were to move that one inch, it's so finely precise, if you were to move that one inch one in one direction or another, everything would, would explode. The only thing left would be life the size of a pea. That's how specific gravity is and, and, and how, um, how wonderful it is in, in terms of how the, how the universe was created in the heavens and you know, beyond the, the other examples we have. Another sampling is the cosmological constant. This describes the expansion speed of space in the universe. If space expands too quickly, 
the universe will increase so fast that the material objects can't form. I put up the video for you. Um, therefore, we would not be able to get stars, planets, or galaxies. Physicists have determined that the cosmological constant is fine-tuned to one part in 100 million billion 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 billion. An illustration of this formula would be to travel thousands of miles into space, throw a dart towards the Earth, hitting a bullseye measuring one trillionth of a trillionth of one inch in diameter. So, obviously, completely impossible. Um, mathematicians have estimated that the fine-tuning probability for these two formulas alone equals one part in a hundred million trillion 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 trillion. Uh, this, this illustration will be equivalent to picking out one specific atom in the universe. So, obviously, all the way the heavens are created, the way that, that, that things are laid out, there is a designer behind it, and that's what a lot of these scientists are trying to get at. Just real quickly, I want to wrap this section up. The size of the sun and the earth is vital to life's existence. A smaller planet would not have the gravitational pull to retain water. I'll call up the video again for you. Um, then you have the distance from the earth to the sun. Uh, if the earth were further away from the sun, we would experience temperatures minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what is measured on Mars, and we would freeze. If the earth was as much as 5% closer to the sun, we would experience temperatures ranging from 800 to 900 degrees. So, you know, I, I hope I'm getting the point. Last is the 23-degree inclination of the Earth to the moon. The moon is one-quarter the size of the Earth, but the moon's po powerful gravitational force stabilizes the Earth's angle at a constant of 23.5 degrees. This ensures relative temperature sa uh, seasonal changes and the climate mild enough to sustain complex living organisms. Uh, the tilt enables seasonal variations that allow such a wide variety of crops to feed life. The gravitational pull this produces also controls the waves and the tides of the world's oceans. And, you know, we know this because if you're near an ocean, I happen to live near the ocean, and at, you know, full moon, you know, high tide, and you see the force of, of, of the waters. So, again, it's all of this is working for our benefit and, and how we know things. I'm going to conclude this section very quickly with something that was done. It was, uh, it was called the Voyager 1. It left Earth, I think, in 1977. Abbreviated version of this is it's a camera that in 1991 or 92 got to the edge of the universe, turned around, and, and shifted back towards the Earth. And what they found was astounding. And I, I've read some of the information from the scientists at NASA who were there when the photographs started to come back. It's, it's with all of the planets in our solar system, I'm showing you this on video now, only the sun highlights the earth. So the sun gives the life, uh, life of, uh, on earth as we know it, man, animals, plant life, so forth, the oceans and, and, and the life in there. So what they saw, and I'm showing you on video, is this ray of light that engulfed only the earth, and it was called the pale blue dot. So... I give you other examples of, of the other planets and, and how they looked. I also wanted to point out that uh, the, the Earth, and this is my opinion only, um, the Earth is the third planet from the Sun. And 
from there, we can see quite plainly that we sustain and get our life from the sun. It's engulfed the earth specifically. And I believe the sun is representation of the son of God. Uh, it's a symbol. It's, it, it's in scripture. What I'm saying is not scriptural in the sense of, this is my opinion. But I believe there is a symbol because, you know, the, the, the Bible states that the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and the expanse of the universe, and I, I believe we see the majesty in creation. And I believe that's a sign of the Trinity that we're, a son, that we're a, the third planet from the sun and we get our life from the sun. Again, my opinion, this is, take what, what, what you will. But with all of this being said, I, I wanted to quote, there's an astronomer named Robert Jastrow who's agnostic. Okay, again, highly educated NASA um, a, a astronomer. He says the universe was constructed within various, na uh, within very narrow limits in such a way that man could dwell in it. The result is called the anthropic principle. It is the most theist theistic result ever to come out of science, in my view. So, you know, there you have it from him. Uh, and again, I, I, what I'm trying to bring out to you is all of the scientific information that blacks up the, the spectacular splendor of the universe and the heavens and, and the earth and the uniqueness of earth and the uniqueness of man. And it does line up with what the Bible laid out. Next, I'm going to shift gears back to the Bible. And I call this section Jesus on Trial. Um, and we're going to talk about the life of Jesus because I've, uh, or the the veracity or, or the the evidence of, of Jesus on earth. And the reason I want to do this is because I, I've heard some people say that, how do we even know Jesus existed? Um, there are people say he's a mythological figure. Did Jesus of Nazareth ever exist? Where's the proof? Well, there are 39 ancient sources in addition to the New Testament referring to the life of Christ, his crucifixion, and his re resurrection. I'm going to get into some of those in a second here. Um, Ignatius was a church leader and apostle, uh, a, a, a pupil of the Apostle John. He lived nearly 70 years after the resurrection. Uh, before he was martyred, as all of the apostles, with the exception of John, were, he, he, he wrote this, he was condemned, he was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination or deceit. He really died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Um, Second Peter says this, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. So obviously even people back in their day, you know, were accusing them of being zealots, of being fanatics, uh, which, you know, falls in line with many people today. Um, it, it says, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his testimony. The other thing I, I point out here is, Jesus is appearing where we are today in visions and dreams of many people in the Middle East. There are many Muslims, there's entire villages that are starting to come in faith in, in Jesus. The largest growing church today in the world comes from the nation of Iran. If, if you know anything, you know about the, the, the government and the hostility towards faith in Jesus there. And the, this church, these people are just so wonderful. And I could say, you know, so much more for other churches as well in communist regimes, China, for instance. Um, but people are coming to faith because they're encountering the resurrected Jesus. They're seeing him in dreams. They're meeting with him. And you may say, well, you know, that's, that's crazy to believe. But yet... It's happening, and it's happening with also, I would say, with large amounts of healings. 
All right, let me just shift gears for a second back to the historical and archaeological corroboration that's outside of the Bible. So again, back to the video here. Uh, I, I show you some other different authors. Cornelius Tacticus, um, 50, uh, I'm sorry, 55 to 120 AD, Flavius Josephus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, uh, Marabar Sepion, and the uh, Talmud Sanhedrin. I just want, I want to just very quickly, I want to take note of something that I think is important, written by Tacticus. He was the historian uh, of ancient Rome. He reported on July 19th, 64 AD, fire was started in Rome that destroyed three quarters of the city over a nine-day period. He reports the fire was planned by the wickedly unstable emperor Nero. In response, Nero created a diversion calling for the torture and execution of Christians. He's trying to blame it on the Christians. This leaves no doubt that Christians existed in 64 AD. In addition, they faced hideous persecution for their belief in Christ. Tacticus writes, Christians were covered in animal flesh and turned over to wild dogs to be eaten or hung on crosses and set afire. Nero offered his palace gardens with guests to display and watch this heinous act of evil. So again, the, the historical veracity is, is bore out by these authors well outside of the Bible. But also what I wanted to point out here is unfortunately the horrible nature of which these people died, but they were willing to die because of the authority and the authenticity of Christ. So this has all been bore out. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Sanhedrins, now these are people who argued against Jesus and, and called him blasphemous. They went as far as to say that um, uh, this was sorcery, and, and that's written in their books. Next, I want to s switch back to Luke. Remember when I cited Luke in the very beginning? He is a dis disciple of the Apostle Paul and historian of the first, na uh, first nature or, or, or first rate. I'm sorry. I'm going to get a little tongue twisted here. I've got a lot of information, so hopefully you'll, you'll come with a little bit of a forgiving heart. Again, going back to video, I'm going to read something that Luke wrote. Um, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke's stating right up front. Now, he is a, uh, he's a doctor and he's also a historian. There was a gentleman named Sir William Ramsey, a very famous historian, he was an atheist who went on a mission to defy uh, the, uh, the, the Bible. In conclusion, he writes this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not, mere, not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, the author should be placed along the greatest of historians. Uh, historian A. Sherwin writes, in all, Luke names 39 countries 54 cities, and nine islands without error. Um, Dr. J. McRae, New Testament archaeologist, for Acts, the also Luke wrote the book of Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject historicity must now appear absurd. The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is a very accurate historian. He is erudite. He is eloquent. His Greek approaches classic quality. He writes as an educated man, and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in whatever he has to say. 
So, you know, there there you have it. Uh, and, and Luke is the writer, of, obviously, of the book of Luke, the book of Acts, which talks about Holy Spirit and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is possibly an author of the, of the book of Hebrews as well. So now I want to shift to the resurrection. So I'm titling this section here, Jesus on Trial, the Resurrection. The witnesses. So, you know, first and foremost, I want to write that Paul is probably, you know, he, he's, he's the most often uh, cited um, author of the New Testament, but he writes this in 1 Corinthians, and if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So right away, he states, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then everything that we're doing is completely useless. Um, then he goes on to say, and, and I'm, I cite here on, on video of all the p- people that Jesus appeared to, and he went on to say at one point, even there was 500 in one shot that Jesus appeared to, a group of 500, and he goes on to say, and most of them are alive today, saying, if you don't believe me, you know, th- th- this is my interpretation of this scripture, if you don't believe me, go ask them, they're right right down the block. So in other words, if, if we were alive during the time of Jesus and he was crucified and then he rose from the dead, you know, a year, two years later, he would say, go ahead, if you don't believe me, go ask Paul down the block or Mary down the block. Um, and I gave you all the different times that, that he appeared in all of the different gospels, all the different writers notated this. Mary Magdalene, uh, Cleopolis, uh, the 11 disciples, the 10 disciples, seven disciples, Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all, all, all there. And I, I put that on video for you. Um, there, it, it, people will say, well, this was fabricated. He didn't really rise from the dead. I'm going to just get into a little bit of this. I'm not going to, because it's just overwhelming that he did. Uh, they call it a fabricated story. So if you consider it fabricated or fake news, if you want to bring it up to today's vernacular, uh, after Jesus died, his followers created a plan to deceive the entire world into believing Jesus is the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of Scripture, and the Son of God who rose from the dead. So that's what people will say. Well, you know, they made it up because they wanted you to believe this. These people ran for the hills when Jesus was crucified. They were nowhere to be seen. You know, for lack of a better word, they were scaredy cats. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. For, there's a whole host of reasons. You can look up, if you wanted to say evidence uh, of the resurrection, you can go online. You can find a whole host of different um, rebuttals to the common arguments. Again, I don't have time to get into all of this. I've gone through all of it. Um, but what happened after the resurrection to all these quote-unquote scaredy cats? They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They broke bread with Jesus. So they communicated. They experienced the resurrected Jesus. That's what lit them on fire. That's what lit the church. That's what lit to you know to the point where I say that there's 2.4 billion people who claim to be Christians today. That's incredible. And that started from these quote unquote scaredy cats uh, because they had encountered the re- the resurrected Jesus. And they became filled with Holy Spirit. So they they had a mission. They had a passion. Jesus said uh, in Acts one eight, I believe, He said, "Do not leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit." As a matter of fact, it's a commandment. Um, 
and and then he went on and he appeared to the women. He is Jesus was you know back then women were not considered to be credible witnesses. So what does Jesus do? He first appears to the women. The women are the one uh, who who told the the disciples that Jesus had rose from the dead. So uh, what what I love there's so much that I love about Jesus, but he was the quintessential countercultural uh, revolutionary, if you will. He was the one who rocked the boat. Uh, there was nothing, he did not operate the way that people uh, uh, thought he would. So let me go on to a, a couple of other people, a couple of other quick examples here. James was his um, uh, half-brother. He did not believe him, um, and yet he became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Um, his family did not believe him. Uh, Mark uh, thirteen fifty three through 57, you know, it talks about... Um, his brothers, James, jo uh, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and then it says his sisters. So Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. We only, you know, it says sisters. We don't know who they were, um, but obviously there were at least two. And then consider Paul the apostle. Paul crucified, well, not crucified, Paul um, went after uh, um, Christians. He, he was Jewish, and he believed this was blasphemy, so he persecuted Christians. He went after them. He brought them to trials. He brought them into prisons. Um, he was an enemy of the church. He was an enemy of the early church. What happened? He encountered the resurrected Jesus. There's the uh, famous road to Damascus, and you can look that up if you're not familiar with it. But Paul, who many would consider the greatest writer of the New Testament or, you know, used by Holy Spirit, um, but what, you know, he, he was the one who was, he was persecuted. He was torturing Christians. So what happened? He saw and encountered the resurrected Jesus. Um, I want to point out here, Simon Greenleaf, uh, he wrote the, uh, uh, from Harvard Law School in the late 1700s, I believe, uh, 1783 to 1853 he lived. But anyway, he wrote a book called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. So he helped our uh, judicial system today and, and the basis of which we go to a court of law and how we go about evaluating the evidence come to a guilty or not guilty verdict. So he was the one who helped propel that into the laws of, of how judges rule today, for that matter, the Supreme Court. What's interesting here is Greenleaf was, a, was an atheist, and he was challenged by his, um, his contemporaries and his students to put Jesus on trial and the resurrection on trial based upon his treaties of evidence. Uh, long story short, after six years, he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but he did, in fact, raise from the dead. He evaluated it, and he operated this, uh, um, you know, looking at it practically, and, and I'll get at one of the things that really put him over the top. There was a number of different areas when he broke down the Gospels and the veracity of the Gospels that he was able to come to this conclusion. I also wanted to point out uh, Sir Lionel Luck, who, uh, who's a very, very famous British attorney in the Guinness Book of Records for uh, as many cases as he's won. Uh, there was, he, with 245 uh, murder acquittals, he states this, I humbly add, I've spent more, more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world and am still in practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes uh, in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. 
Next, I wanted to switch to the, the martyrs. So all of the apostles, many of the disciples, and, and, and you know, historical evidence bears this out, that entire uh, um, areas of, of cities and, and, and villages were destroyed. People were killed, burned, the most hor- horrendous, heinous deaths. And this was one of the things that, that um, uh, Greenleaf looked at. He said, well, here you've got these people being executed in the most heinous faction 60, 70, 80 years after the death of Jesus. He, you know, he, he, he says, you know, people would not hold on to that for that long of a period of time unless they had encountered Jesus. So it was part of what uh, brought him to this, this conclusion. Um, I'll put this up on video. Uh, James, who was the brother of Je- half brother of Jesus, was stoned at age 94. Uh, Peter's brother Andrew was arrested uh, and, and crucified. Uh, 2,000 Christians were martyred in 34 AD. Uh, John, oh, I'll get to John in a second. I just want to. Uh, Luke was hung to death on an olive tree in Greece. Paul was his his uh, um, transformation was so dramatic they were they couldn't they had to execute him privately uh, because the I, I believe the light shone so brightly on him. Stephen was stoned to death. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Peter was brought to Rome, as was Paul, uh, to be put on trial, and he uh, was ordered to be crucified. He said, I don't, I don't deserve to be crucified like Jesus, so he demanded that he be crucified upside down, and he did. Um, uh, James, son of Zebedee, uh, he was uh, killed uh, by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. Uh, Philip, was scourged and thrown in prison and crucified in Phrygia in 54 AD. Uh, Jude was crucified in Edessa in 72 AD. Mark was dragged to pieces in Alexandria in front of Serapis, which was their pagan idol. Thomas was put to death by sword in India from a pagan prison. And the only one who wasn't was John. And interestingly, they did try to... uh, uh, killed John. They put him in a vat of boiling oil and he lived. It did not kill him. So I guess they were kind of freaked out and that's where he was sentenced to the island of Patmos and, and obviously writing uh, the book of Revelation. I'm going to cite a couple of books here. Um, again, back to video. Uh, Josh McDowell. These are books, th- these are authors, and I wanted to state this up front, that were atheists and skeptical of, of Jesus. In the case of McDowell and Straubel, uh, they had a mission to prove that, that the Gospels were false, and they became not only convinced, uh, Josh McDowell was a, an attorney, Lee Straubel, an investigative uh, journalist, uh, wrote the famous book, The Case for Christ, and a number of others, which is actually a movie. There's a small book that I highly recommend, I love, it's called Reflections of a Journey uh, by Randall Niles. It's a, it's a very small book. And he, he, he approached it, and, and I believe beautifully, as if you are an unbeliever, you know, he wanted to know what is that information? How can I come to the conclusion? And, you know, he was honest enough to, to state that. So um, I, I, I just highly recommend he approached a number of different areas of uh, topics to get at that conclusion. So those are just some books and some some resources that I suggest 
written by people who did not believe, did not have faith in God, and in a couple of instances went about their life's mission to disprove the veracity of Christ. And when they unpacked all of the evidence, they couldn't. Uh, so I want to get into prophecy right now. Let me just call up and give you the chapter so that if you're following me on video, you can see it. Uh, let me go into some of the things concerning prophecy. This is Jesus speaking. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and enter into his glory, beginning at Moses and all the prophets? So Jesus is saying that, uh, you know, when they were surprised to see him, he, he said it was written in the books. It was written in the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 46 I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet dying, done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. This is very important. Jesus tells you what the end is before it even starts. Again, bearing witness to not only you know the veracity of Scripture and the validity of it, but also, I believe, is an act of mercy, because if he's showing you these things that defy any type of human logic— then he's letting you know that he is, in fact, the one true God. Second um, Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy uh, came not in old time, but by the will of man, but holy men of God spoken as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So this is important, too, because we, you know, and, and people are guilty of it, and, and I'm probably guilty of it myself. We will look at a pro prophecy and we'll try to give our slant to it. And really what it's saying is th there's only one truth, and, and, and the truth is God, and that prophecy stands as God declared it. Um, so that, you know, that becomes important, but also, you know, he's letting you know that the words that were written in these Old Testament, New Testament scriptures of divine inspiration going according to, again, the measuring rod, the canonization that we spoke about in the very beginning, that this was laid out, that people wrote not just of their own volition, but they were inspired and moved by Holy Spirit. First Peter says this, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. And he goes on here, but basically he's saying, what you saw and what you see, especially to his contemporaries in, in Peter's case, is really what the Old Testament prophets longed for. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, <coughs> excuse me, all scripture is, give, is given by divine inspiration of God. So he's letting you know, I've inspired this, I've inspired men to write these words down, and I'm going to show you just how incredible this is. Prophecies of a coming Messiah. Jesus says, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I want to emphasize, because I've heard over the years, many people who profess to be Christians, um, people, honestly, who I went, and I went to grammar, Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, same thing, you know, uh, students, you know, not contemporaries or friends of mine, still friends of mine, I'm not... But they, you know, they write things about the Old Testament, how, you know, it's not applicable to today's standards because for cultural reasons or, you know, it's the furthest thing from the truth is, is really what I want to get at. And if they really considered that Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament, referred to the Old Testament, preached the Old Testament in the synagogues, they would come to realize the, the 
error of their ways, I'll put it that way. So look at all of these different um, things that Jesus fulfilled in prophecy. I give you the Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament record of the fulfillment of these. He's born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, heralded by the messenger of the Lord. He would perform miracles. He would preach good news, uh, present himself as king. And I'm going to get into the days that were written here. Uh, you'll, you'll see that shortly. There's a mathematical equation that defies anything you could possibly say concerning prophecy. Uh, he would enter Jerusalem riding on, uh, on a donkey. Some scriptures will actually say a cult. He would die a humiliating and painful death. His hands and feet, feet would be pierced. His executioners would cast lots for his clothing. And all of, a lot of these, not all of them, a lot of these are bore out in other writings by other authors outside of the Old and New Testament. So this isn't only just in the Bible. This is even you know, accounted for elsewhere. I wanted to point out something here that I think is, again, just laying the the odds and, and just put your thinking cap on. Messianic prophecy is a collection of 300 predictions in the Jewish scriptures about Jesus. The predictions were written by multiple authors, numerous books over approximately 1,000 years. The mathematical probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled is one in, or 10 times 10 to the 15th power. I give you all the zeros. I couldn't even begin to. It's, you know, one in quote, some 10 times quadrillion. Um, so just consider one person going to give you eight prophecies. Comes from the line of David, born in Bethlehem, enters Jerusalem on the donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, crucified, bones would not be broken, buried in a rich man's tomb, rises from the dead. Jesus himself predicted his death and resurrection. He says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus is telling you, I'm going, I'm going to die. So when he kept saying, I'm going away, they didn't understand it, but yet he, he really gave it to them. So of all the prophecies concerning Jesus, more than 50 were, uh, were fulfilled by his death and resurrection. So I'm going to switch gears, staying on prophecy. I'm going to point out something that I think is just absolutely incredible again. Um, this goes to historic prophecies concerning something that we can bear out today in historical records that was written in the Bible well beforehand. So there are over 1,000 prophecies that are written in the, in the Bible. 668 have been fulfilled. I'm specifically talking about the decree of Cyrus here. In 700 BC, Isaiah names Cyrus as the king who will allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. At this time, there was no King Cyrus, and the temple was built. It was in Jerusalem. Israel was, was flourishing. It was you know, going on in business as usual. But yet, more than 100 years after he writes this, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem, pillages, destroys the temple, the Jews living in Jerusalem were either killed or captured. In roughly 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire was conquered again. This uh, No, not, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians. Shortly thereafter, a Persian king named Cyrus issues a formal decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. So he gives them the, the okay. This is 100 years later. 
This degree is, is confirmed by secular archaeology in the form of a stone cylinder that details many events of Cyrus's reign, including the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So let me recap this. Isaiah predicted a man named Cyrus, who was not even born, would come in a hundred years. He would give a decree to rebuild a city and a temple. The city and the temple was standing, but now he's saying it's going to have to be rebuilt which were standing and fully active at that time. To the letter, that prophecy came to pass. I'm going to go to the next one here on video. So bear with me for a minute. This is a mathematical um, specif specification that you, 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 it's just it's amazing. It's, it's the beauty of Jesus. He's showing you Jesus is real. So Daniel 9, 24 through 27, he lays down a... Uh, uh, lays out a section of time that's broken down into three different uh, increments. There are uh, it's broken into weeks of years, so seven. So if he says a week, it's you know seven years. These timestamps are seven weeks of years, which is 49, 62 weeks of years, which is 434, and one week of years, which is seven. So it comes to a grand total of 490 years. Again. Different, you know, different divisions. There's the seven, the 62, and then the last seven. The first seven and the 62 have already been fulfilled. The next seven is what's called the tribulation. It will happen at the end, uh, at the end, nearing the end of the earth as we know it. So, again, you can find this in Daniel 9:24 through 27. Uh, let me get, let me cut to the video here and explain something to you, or show you. I'm sorry. Um, so the seven weeks or the 49 years specifies the time of the command to rebuild Jerusalem until it's complete, which is what we were talking about with Cyrus. The, the exact decree itself came under the reign of Cyrus, but it was issued by King Xerxes. 62 weeks or 434 years specifies the time of the completion of Jerusalem to the Messiah entering the city on a cult. We referred to that previously. And then the one week of year specifies the announcing of a peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist, which leads up to the return of Jesus. So there's a gentleman named the, uh, uh, Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. He, um, he wanted to look at the time frame of, of what was there because the Jewish calendar or the Hebrew calendar is specific. It is not the Gregorian calendar. It goes according to uh, the, the lunar calendar, the moon, whereas we go upon the sun. And our calendar shifts because of that. So there's 360 days for every calendar year. And so he went back into history. He was able to verify King Xerxes uh, accedes to the throne in, in, in 445 B.C., and we know this also from uh, Nehemiah. Let me put this up on, uh, on here. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, Nehemiah 2.1, King's reign begin at the first month of Nisan. This is the Jewish month. March 14th is the first day of Nisan. So March, you know, our equivalent, our calendar equivalent. March 14th is the day that the kings issue their decrees. So March 14th, 445 B.C. issues the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. We know Jerusalem was rebuilt in, in 396 B.C. So if you take 69 times 7, that's 483 years. Then you have 483 times 360. 
That's 173,880 days. The way we do the math here is 445 BC, and again, you can go to the book, The Coming Prince. He bore all this out. Um, he was a, uh, um, a member of Scotland Yard. He was the uh, commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police, and he was also an intelligence officer, theologian, and writer. But at any rate, the way we, he was able to break this down is from 4045 BC to 32 AD, which is when Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem, what we know as Palm Sunday, and that's 173,440 days. He then takes into account 116 days for leap years. March 14th to April 6th, remember the decree is issued on the 14th, April 6th is Palm Sunday. We know this because of Passover. So all of this is readily available, information that's easily discerned. That equals 24 days. So if you total them up, it's 173,880 days. So it's exactly 483 years, exactly as the prophet had laid out, uh, um, you know, well, Daniel, well, well, well beforehand. To the day, we can prove that the, this 483 years uh, became fulfilled prophetically just as Jesus said it. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a timeline here on video to show you, you know, historically. Um, I would also say that I, I don't have the time to break it all down. Daniel also predicted or, or prophesied four global empires that came to pass. He was living in the time of, of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, but he also said what will come after this was what inevitably was the Medo-Persian Empire. He predicted the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, and all of this is incredibly detailed, and history bore all of it out. But So if you look at this time frame I'm showing you on video, from the time the decree is, is issued by, by Xerxes in March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D., it is that 173,880 days to the day. So this is empirical, measurable, provable evidence beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that the Bible laid all of this out well, well beforehand. So I want to continue on the nation of Israel. I, I said up front how important Israel is. So let me give you the chapter marker, Israel. So I want to uh, first get into a couple of prophecies here that are important. Jeremiah says this in 2511, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So we know that they uh, afterwards, uh, the, Babylon, the Babylonians took over, conquered Israel, bought them back. That's where uh, Daniel had served. And, and it goes on, Jeremiah in 28 says this, For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, this is before it was, uh, it was captured. Again, history bears all of this out. He says, I will visit you and perform my good toward you in causing you to return to this place. We just showed you how the Jews had returned after, seven, after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They returned to Israel. Deuteronomy 4.27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So sure enough, we know that Jews were scattered throughout the world. Um, this is very important because we can, again, this is something that's documented that we can bear witness to. Leviticus says this, and I will bring the land into desolation and your enemies which, will del uh, which dwell therein shall be ast astonished at it. 
I will scatter you among the heathen. I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you be in her enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths. So there's a uh, um, um, a command that the Lord had given that the land should be rested after seven years, which the Israelites do today. And, and I'll show you some miracles that that proves out. But what I wanted to point out here is that Jesus is telling you, I'm going to scatter you with uh, um, the Lord. Um, he says, I'm going to scatter you amongst the nations. So what's very important here is we can see that the people were scattered around the world. So there's two things, and I'll probably wind up touching on this again. Israel was was destroyed by the Babylonians and brought back to Babylon as what was, was prophesied, and they came back to the land and they were restored. Then the Lord says, you're going to be destroyed again and conquered again. This time I'm going to scatter you throughout the nations, throughout the world. We know this happened. We know that the Jews were scattered throughout the world. And he says, and I will cause you to come back, which he did. And we see the land of Israel today, the rebirth of this nation. And I'm going to get into some of those miracles. But he said before this that the land will be desolate. It will be isolated. It will be a barren wasteland. Mark Twain wrote his famous book called The Innocents Abroad. In 1867, he went to Israel. He wanted to go to the biblical land of Israel and see what was there with his own eyes. And he reported back to a San Francisco newspaper, and eventually this book came out of it. But I want to write, uh, uh, um, read to you what he wrote in this book concerning what he saw hands-on in Israel in 1867. He said, It's a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even the imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So he's giving you a first-hand account. And what's also important here is where you have the, these battles today, and the you know people will say that this is the Palestinians' land, and they've had it for hundreds of years, and they lived here. This is an account of there. There was Bedouin. There was people there, and you can go back and you can see the pictures of of, of people back, and you can go online and and find pictures from the late 1800s. It's a malaria-infested swamp. So to say that the Palestinians were living there and thriving there and the, and, and the Israelis had somehow, you know, conquered them and, and oppressed them is a lie. It's, it's, it's a lie. And, and so here you have a direct account um, telling you, you know, what this land looked like and then what we see today. So I want to switch gear. Well, not, I'm going to stay on the land of Israel. But I want to go to what was written in the very beginning in Genesis concerning God's promises uh, in regard to Israel. He said this in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So he will make you a great nation. And I show you a map on here. This tiny, tiny nation that's the size of roughly the state of New Jersey in America, surrounded by enemies today, is a incredibly thriving, prosperous country, just as the Bible had, had said it was. Now, these are personal and national covenants. Consider the Arabs have been attacking them, uh, you know, relentlessly, but you know, most notably the 1948, as soon as it was declared a nation, they went after them. The 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 uh, war, um, the, 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 the onslaughts, the, 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 the boycotts, the Holocaust, all of this, and the Israelis and the Jewish people have survived. They turned this poor rural country into an industrial powerhouse. Again, I, I remind you of what this was just a hundred or a little over a hundred years ago. Um, it was reduced social, educational, and health gaps between Arabs and Jews. It leads the Middle East in productivity, wealth, order, freedom, and military power. It is a great nation, just as the Lord had prophesied that it would after it comes back. The rebirth of Israel. You know, I'm going to go back to video here. Uh, scripture says, how can a nation be born in a day? Yet on May 14th, 1948, it, uh, it was born, and it was helped push through by uh, Harry Truman, president of the United States, who just, I think a couple of months earlier, was the vice president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was against uh, Israel coming together as a nation, and, you know, whether he was removed, however you want to describe it, uh, he wasn't the president that helped put them over the top in the United Nations, and Harry Truman was the one who, who led the charge. Um in that day, the root of Jesse will stand and a banner of the people. The root of Jesse is is the uh, um, star of David. Sure enough, that's the symbol of the Israeli flag today. So, you know, that in and of itself. Uh, then I'm going to go to what we can see today, but most notably the restoration of the Hebrew language. Uh, Zephaniah says, for then I will turn to return to the people a pure language. Uh, the key person in, in this was Eleazar Yitzhak Perlman. In the late 1800s, he went to Israel. He worked on restoring the original Hebrew language. Uh, the, the closest thing you would have had would have been Yiddish, which was a combination of the Jews that were scattered in Europe. It was a combination of, of, of Hebrew and German. He restored the, uh, the original language, which is the language of Israel today, just as the Lord had said it. I, sh I show you just kind of a, a, a montage of images of just how successful this nation is. Um, it's, sci it's, uh, techno it's technology is world-class. Uh, the businesses that are coming out of there, they lead the world in medical technology, medical advancements, the military, I would say is the top five, six, seven in the world today. The, the, the Lord prophesied that the desert would bloom. Uh, it's the leading exporter of flowers today. Uh, the amount of um, uh, Nobel Prize winners. It's, it's uh, one of the forerunners of development of, uh, of diamonds in the world today. It's an economic powerhouse. It's a juggernaut. It's this tiny, tiny nation. But God said, I will turn it into a great nation. We can see this with our own eyes today. And this is why I say to you, you know, just look. It, it, it's in front of us. We're living in these times where God, where God declared it. I'm going to show you too. Um, he said, I will bring you from the ends of the earth. I will bring you from the nations. What do we see today? There's something called Aliyah, where the government brings home Jews who were, uh, have, have that natural origin, 
Uh, and people are, you know, they're, they're coming forth and they're saying, I don't know why, but, I, you know, if they're Jewish, they, they, they say, I, I feel like I need to go back to the land of Israel. Um, so they're bringing them in from all over the world. It's, it's, it's the prophecies that we see are being fulfilled right in front of us, just as uh, what the Lord had laid out. I want to stay on Israel, but I want to show you something of what we can see over the last 20 or 30 years. There's a gentleman named William Koenig, who's a uh, researcher, um, uh, um, I, I, I would say a, a reporter of sorts, uh, working out of Washington for a long number of years. At any rate, he wrote a book called Eye to Eye, and he started observing and seeing things, um, uh, taking note of horrendous natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, just incredible things that were happening to the country after policies that were going forth led by our administrations, both Democrat and Republican. This is not a party issue. Um, and he he cites this. It's called Eye to Eye. He cites, a, I'll, I'll just show you the book in case I, I highly recommend it. It's an incredible book. He, he's, he's a great researcher too, if you look him up online. Um, but he, he, he cites 126 storms uh, or, you know, different occurrences that happened to, to, at times within hours of people trying to divide the land of Israel. And, and God said, this is my land, this is my people, you know, for my people. So the whole land for peace, every time that we see this, some type of cataclysmic activity happens. And when I said in the beginning, I'm going to, you know, refer to things that we can see. It's not notated in the book because it just happened last month. But Hurricane Fiona and Ian, uh, which were horrendous problems, devastated Florida, Puerto Rico, and, and parts of Canada, um, happened within a week or two after the United States was pressuring Israel to divide up the land, and uh, the prime minister there, who will shortly be voted out, uh, Ichak Lapid, I'm sorry, um, and long story short there, all the, the storms came, you know, within a week or two. Um, and also uh, the prime minister of Canada, Trudeau, he was putting pressure at the UN. And then, uh, which was it, Fiona had hit the Atlantic coast of Canada. They, they called it their equivalent to, uh, um, oh gosh, I forget the name of our hurricane in 2011. But at any rate, we can go back to, um, Hurricane Katrina. We you can go back to two years ago. We had devastating tornadoes in the United States. Kentucky was just sections of it were leveled. It was four states, um, right at the same time where you know presidents were were pressuring uh, Israel to divide land. Now consider this: that they are pushing for this current administration today wants and administration two administrations back forty four and forty six wanted Israel to go back to pre-1967 lines. So in the 1967 Six-Day War, they recaptured Jerusalem, the entirety of it, East Jerusalem, as, as well as um, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Golan Heights, I'm sorry, northern Israel. So they, they wound up sacrificing or offering some of it to try to keep some peace. But at any rate, 44 and 46 wants them to go back to these boundaries. What that would do is you would remove 200,000 people from their homes in East Jerusalem and 400,000 from the West Bank, um, you know, which is, you know, 
you, you can look you can look it up online. But it's what we, you know we know historically is the area of, of, of Bethlehem and, and and there right next to Jordan. Four hundred thousand would be removed, and then at, you would have a width to safeguard your your country of nine miles. That's it. Anything outside of nine miles, enemy territory can come in. So the Golan Heights, where today, and we'll get into that very shortly, uh, you have enemies at the doorstep in Syria and in Libya, and uh, not Libya, I'm sorry. Um, oh, gosh, I'm getting senior moments here. <laughs> Lebanon. It was an L. Um, but you have your enemies there at, at the doorstep, and yet 44 and 46 are pressuring the Israelis. So at any rate, all of these storms, once you start messing with Israel, you know, again, I'm saying this is well beyond the pale of, of, of coincidence, and it's well documented in this book, so I, I suggest if you wanted to check it out. Um, winding down now with Israel, there's the book of Ezekiel written roughly 2,500 years ago. Chapters 36 and 37 have been fulfilled, and 38, I believe we are on the cusp of seeing it fulfilled, and I'll show you why. So a new covenant for Israel's land, and I'm giving you, you know, the abridged version of what happens. It says the the land will be renewed, the nations will see, and they will tell of the blessed land of Israel. We know, you know, that Israel is blessed. Uh, They will renew the people of Israel, a promise to gather the scattered Israelis. We talked about that. Uh, We restore the desolate places and bless the land and her agriculture. So I show you some pictures of, of the... The desert blooming, you know, it, it defies, you know, anything that you can imagine. As a matter of fact, in the Negev desert, the tomatoes are so luscious that they import them into Italy. And, and the Italians, known for their sauce and their cooking and, you know, their wonderful tomatoes, you know, they're the top flight. But the Italians view these tomatoes as so special, they import them from Israel. So this has been fulfilled, is my point. Ezekiel 37 is the valley of dry bones. And he's, he shows Ezekiel a vision, and he's ankle deep in bones. And he says, speak, can, new, can these bones live? And it speak new life to the lifeless. And there's no hope for life. And he's asking him, can this happen? And, and I, I say that when God speaks, these things can happen. And he asks him, he says, can these bones live? And there's the, no hope of life in the bones. And I show you the, the example, what I believe was, has happened, was the Holocaust. And, you know, these are horrible things. You know, these people, less than 100 pounds here. You can go, you know, research all the pictures you want, you know, that will bear this out. And it says, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off of our parts. I believe we saw that, and we, in spite of this happening, you know, in the late 30s and, and, and 40s, God restored his people. God brought them out of the worst possible situation in the Holocaust, and he restored them, and he brought them into the land of Israel. So there, where, where all hope was lost, they were desolate, they were being crushed, they thought they had this country, you know, they're working towards it, but yet they were being persecuted, um, you know, in Eastern Europe. So 36 and 37 has been fulfilled. The next prophecy is Ezekiel 38 and 39. In this, and I'm going to give you the abridged version, you can look it up, there's a host of nations that will um, declare war on Israel and they will, will attack Israel, will go into the mountains of Israel. It will be led by Russia, 
Iran and Turkey, North African nations, Southern Stand nations. I give you the biblical breakdown of these nations here and what they are today, what the biblical names are and where they are uh, today. But one of the reasons that I want to cite this is Russia, Turkey, and Iran are the three larger nations that are part of this coalition, I'll call it. And they are on the border right now of Israel in the northern border. Their armies are presently in Syria. So they're, they're right on the border. Whether this means this is Ezekiel 38, you know, is going to happen tomorrow or, you know, a year, two years. I can't say that. I'm not. But I'm saying that the signs are there, that everything is coming together just as the Bible had laid out. And we can see that with our own eyes. And again, I give you the, the nations of, of the breakdown. There's some North African nations and, and Libya is a part of it. Russian troops are over there. And I wanted to cite the Ukrainian-Russian war. This war has nothing to do with uh, Ezekiel 38 and what's referred to as the War of Gog of Magog. I want to make that clear. But what could potentially be happening is the the the, the uh, steps are being laid that could lead to Russia invading Israel as a result of what is starting to take place in Eastern Europe. So we all know that um, so Gog, I should say, in 38, is the ruler of Russia, or Rosh, and, and God says, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to put a hook in your jaw and, and pull you into the land. Is this Putin? We can't say. It, Putin certainly bears resemblance to what is described in Ezekiel 38, but unless he goes into the land of Israel and attacks it, you know, we can't say that with any degree of certainty. We can speculate uh, and, and it's quite possible, but we don't know it. And I, I just, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that, but what is interesting to watch, and we all know that Russia um, uh, delivered the gas into, uh, and the energy into Europe, that's now been cut off. Um, I show you, and we know that the gas lines, again, I'm speaking to you in mid-October, just a couple of weeks ago, they were sabotaged. So uh, um, the Nord Stream 1, the Nord Stream 2, the two pipelines that could funnel gas into Europe has now been destroyed. Um, it, it, if it does get repaired, it will take years. I mean, it was serious damage. These were cemented trunk lines underneath. So this was really, really sabotaged and, and destroyed. So what means is the Europeans will not get their energy. You know, Russia was threatening and they cut it off for a period of time, but they were at least able to get it through. Now they can't even deliver it. So now this financial juggernaut that they had going by supplying the, the gas and the heat to, to Europe is gone. It's been destroyed. It's been decimated. So it hurts their economy. They're getting around it, so to speak. But this was a big part of, of how they finance things. This is why I'm saying it may that what's happening there may be leading to Ezekiel 38. Very well could be. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. And again, I'm not. I'm, I'm showing you here on video. Um, you know, I think everybody's pretty much familiar with with the explosion and the gas bubbling up to the surface of the waters. And then I show you the gas lines. But what's also concerning is, you know, Europe is going to have a, a horrendously cold winter coming up. So what we have here is, let me show you again on video, it's, you know, why will they attack? According to Ezekiel, 
They want to seize Israel's land, their wealth, and their people. Where will they attack? Ezekiel states the mountains of Israel, and I'm showing you all this on, on video. Uh, when will they attack? He prophesied three events must be uh, present before they can attack. Is Israel must be present in her homeland. Check, she's present. Israel must be prosperous in her land. Check, she's prosperous. Israel must be in peace in her land. I would say check, she's at peace. People may you know, debate that. Um, they, they've never been more secure in the history of their country right now than they are today. Um, I visited Israel, spent a couple of weeks there in 2017. I, I can tell you as a New Yorker, I, I felt more peaceful there and secure there than I would in, at times in or certain sections of New York City. Um, do they have volatility? Do they have uh, uh, things that they need to watch out for? Yeah, and this is why they have one of the greatest militaries and intelligence uh, in the in the entire world. So now I want to get back to Israel and the gas. So in 20, 2009, I think they discovered large tremendous amounts of, of natural gas off of their coastline in the Mediterranean. Um, they've been able to convert this into gas, and they are now funneling it into uh, um, Cyprus and Greece, and they have some, some lines that are built across the Mediterranean and already getting it into Italy. What's happened over the last couple of months, I believe it was in June, uh, maybe July, uh, Israel signed an agreement that they would patched the, the, the gas line uh, to Europe through Egypt because for anti-Semitic reasons, they couldn't, they, they needed to have an Egyptian stamp as well instead of an Israeli stamp. Long story short, and I want to show you on the map here that Israel now has an agreement to funnel all of the, the gas into Europe and Europe has, has signed on for this. My point here is Russia has lost its uh, finances and its re resource to get gas, uh, natural gas into and energy into Europe. Europe's about to encounter an incredibly cold winter. Even with Israel signing this agreement, it's going to take them, I would say, you know, at least a good year or two, um, if not longer, to get all the way there to build the infrastructure to make that happen. So my point here is that they have the wealth, they have the resources that's now, again, an economic powerhouse, and Russia had it. So could that be the carrot, if you will, that, that causes Putin to go down? I don't know. It's possible. But it's something to look out for. My point here is Ezekiel 36 is fulfilled, Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled, and we're seeing the signs that possibly could lead to the culmination of Ezekiel 38. The reason I wanted to bring that up is, well, where are we today? I'm showing you on video just a kind of a map. If you look on the, not a map, a timeline, I should say. Uh, today, where, where we are, if you're a Christian, you're praying, you're believing. Um, and, and Jesus says in Matthew, so also when you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates. The next great thing, according to prophecy, according to the Bible, is the war of Gog of Magog. And then from that, you have the rapture of the church. I'm not going to get into all of that. Um, uh, you know, some people, if you're not a Christian, you know, you may not believe it. Even Christians, they, they vary on the timing of it. But the, the point is that 
we are we are on the cusp of that because the outcome says God says I will destroy you for my glory. It won't be the Israeli army. The Lord says I will destroy you through natural causes, hailstone, fires, earthquakes, whatever. But it'll be made known that all of these nations coming against Israel, Russia, Turkey, Iran, the southern stand nations, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, possibly Afghanistan, um, they will be coming down. Islamic nations outside of Russia, these are all Islamic nations which would have a natural tendency to hate the Jews. North African nations, uh, uh, Libya, Sudan. So all of this, they will be attacking the land of Israel and God will supernaturally defeat them. And I believe that will lead up to what is called the, the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel where the temple will be rebuilt. So that's how close we potentially are. And, 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 and I'll show you that there's reason to believe we, you know, we are pretty close. Um, it, but Jesus does say, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the son, not, nor the son, but the father only. So only the father has revealed that we're waiting for it. But the signs of what God laid out are lining up that we're, we're getting very near the end. So since we are getting near the end, I want to talk about hell. And hell may not be a, a, a popular topic to talk about, but if we're talking about eternity, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning. And the reason is, believe it or not, Jesus spoke more on hell than, than, than on heaven. Charles Baudelaire in the mid-1800s wrote what I think is one of the best lines concerning the devils and concerning Satan, Jesus' enemy. The greatest... <clears throat> The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he does not exist. And I would say that's the case today. We make light of it. We think, <clears throat> you know, we consider hell and we consider, you know, we'll make fun of the devil and a pitchfork and horns and, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm going to take, well, I'm going to just pause for a second and catch my breath. Sorry about the sounds with the water, but hopefully you understand. But again, Jesus spoke more uh, about hell. And, uh, you know, when, when, when I get to the point of, of um, Charles Baudelaire's line about, he's, you know, he's convinced the world he doesn't exist. You know, there was something, uh, you know, you, you can see shows, movies, TV, books, so much in the media where it just, it, 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 it it really, it makes it light of it. And the fact of the matter is, hell is an actual place. And scripture bears this out. It is an intentional place. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So uh, that's not prepared for man, but man is winding up there with the devil and his angels, those of you who won't believe. It is a painful place. It has fire, punishment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus mentioned that seven times. It is an eternal place. Um, how offensive sin is to a perfectly holy God. Remember, God is holy. He can't stand in the presence of sin. Sin is so bad that his son had to suffer the darkness and pain of the cross. It is an avoidable place. You don't have to go there. Um, it Scripture goes on, it separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, you're going to have a choice. Um, and Jesus gives you a good description uh, of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. He said, but at the moment of death, a person is aware, 
He can feel torment, pain of shame, failure, regret, and remorse. The next thing is, so hell is real. Hell is intentional. Hell is the place that you don't want to go to. I'm going to give you a couple of things that bear this out. But I wanted to address where people will say good people will go to heaven. I see this all the time. I'm sure you do. Um, or somebody dies and says, well, that person's dancing with the angels. And, you know, the, you hope that they are if they believe in Jesus. But Jesus clearly says that they are not if they do not believe in him. And I'm going to bear this out with you for a second. Well, let me show you. Let me go. Let me cut to the video here. If God is truly a God of love, he will let the good people into heaven despite their lifelong rejection of him. That's the argument. People say this all the time. But consider if God allows sinners who refuse to repent of their sins, he would deny his nature as a just and holy God. Admitting unrepentant sinners into heaven would transform paradise into an annex of hell. If an unrepentant soul were allowed into heaven, his sinfulness would destroy the holiness of heaven. The cleansing of our souls requires the spiritual application of the blood of Jesus and prepares our hearts. John 3.18 says this, Whoever believes in him and is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the, only, in, this, in the name of the only Son of God. And this is his judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Maybe not a good analogy, but I almost think of, you know, if if you know a room has roaches and if it's dark and you turn on the light and they scatter, they're exposed. Sin is exposed. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory. Um, simple example, thou shalt not steal. I have to admit in my life in the past, I stole. Thou shalt not lie. I lie. What does that make me? It makes me a liar. It makes me a thief. We've all sinned. And, and, and we fall short of the glory. And I fall short and everybody falls short every day. There's only one perfect person in this world and his name is Jesus. So I, I want to continue on with hell for two more slides here. Um, specifically mentioned 32 times and is referenced 162 times in the Bible. I give you the names of what it's called. Again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fire is not quenched. The worm never dies. Uh, it is outer darkness. Picture, you know, the complete darkness where you can't see in front of you. That's what we're talking about. A place where one is tormented by flames and past memories. A great gulf is uh, uh, transfixed between hell and paradise or uh, Hades, um, um, Sheol, as we know it from the Old Testament. Uh, Mark, Matthew 10, 28. Do not, this is Jesus telling you this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. So, again, it's there. I want to go shift gears to a second to somebody who was an atheist, did not believe in hell. He's a cardiologist. He wrote a book called Beyond Death's Door, The Life After Life Bestseller. Maurice Rawlings is his name. He's had 300 patients with near-death experiences. He says, I am thoroughly convinced there is life after death and that there are at least as many people going to hell as heaven. I'm convinced there is a hell and that we must conduct ourselves in such a way 
to avoid being sent there at all costs. He wound up coming to the Lord. You know, he's had a number of these instances where people died at, you know, his table, his operating room, his office, I'm not sure. But he had somebody who looked like he had passed on and he was screaming, I'm in hell, I'm in hell, help me, help me. And, you know, the guy had seen this so many times and he, you know, he wound up coming to the Lord. Um, there's a very sad Pew Forum study that was given um, a couple of years ago, two years ago, maybe. And from that, it said that this is in America. 87% believe in God. 74% believe in heaven. 59% believe in hell. So I don't know how they come about that, but people aren't thinking. And, you know, this this is really, the topic of this is called critical thinking. So I'm asking you to apply your logic, to apply your common sense, to apply your deductive reasoning. All of this information is in you. And Jesus said that, in the you know, when the disciples asked him, we're going to get to this, what are the signs of the last days? And he said the number one sign, or the first sign, I should say, that he mentions is deception. You will be deceived. So I would just conclude with this, you know, in regard to hell, that if there is no hell, there would have been no reason at all for the cross. So it, it doesn't make any sense. So the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ verifies the, the, that hell is a real place. So as we wind this down, signs that we are living in the last days. What are the signs? Again, I call upon deception. I show you a little clock there on the video. It's called the doomsday clock. And I think it was over the last year, they keep moving it. You know, maybe five years ago, I think it was 10 minutes to midnight. And this is the world when it's evaluating everything that's happening in the world, saying how close we are. It's now 100 seconds to midnight. This is what the world is saying. So what are some of the things that the Bible lays out and, and, and that we see? Global currency. There will be a global currency. We must have that. And sure enough, we can look at digital technology. Uh, and and we're, on the, we're on the cusp of that right now. Um, I cite what, I, what I'm calling a digital tattoo. And, and honestly, a number of uh, agencies are around the world. What do I mean by that? So um, if, if, you know, you took... Um, you put something, whether it's in your, and this is going to be ultimately what will lead up to what we know is the mark of the beast. But if you inject something inside of you, and it could have a chip, it could have uh, something that they can track and trace you, and they can do, they have the technology today. It's here, it's in use, uh, it's in parts of Europe and Asia today. They're they're working with it, they're testing with it. But what they can do, they, they can trace you, they can control your bank accounts. We're seeing this now. We saw this in Canada last year where um, the, the, the government didn't line up or the people, the truckers in Ottawa didn't line up um, and they seized their bank accounts, their trucks, their vehicles, their livelihood. Um, my, my point here is the technology is there to, to see whether you know, you, you, you've, you're medically authorized, you're financially authorized, they can trace you, they can track you where you are, they can control your travel plans, the technology. And so I'm not saying it's, it's, it's in use today, but it's being evaluated, it's being applied. There are certain cases where what inevitably would correspond to the mark of the beast is laid out in the book of Revelation where you need this in order to buy, sell, and trade. Um, the technology is there. So I'm calling it a digital tattoo. 
earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. You can say, yeah, we've always had that. If you look up all the records, it's growing exponentially at a speed that's incredibly alarming in terms of the quantities from year to year. Uh, lawlessness. We can see it around. I'm an American. We can see it around the country today. We see it everywhere. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Unfortunately, I don't see it getting better. I don't, I, you know, I'm not being pessimistic. I pray everything does. But it, it's, you know, when you've gone that far, it's hard to cut. It's hard to come back. Um, I would say, you know, what we're looking at, and we're seeing today when we're seeing the uh, um, the butchering of, of, of genitalia from young babies and, and saying it's acceptable and it's, 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 it's horrendous and murdering the unborn. And I saw something yesterday and, you know, whether you are a proponent of, of, of abortion or not, and it, if you are a Christian, then you, you can't be, well, it's murder. Uh, um, but it's you know if you look at when the laws were written it was in unusual situations and it was supposed to be under the most unusual circumstances and now it's become routine and, and people you know back then it was you know 3 months or under and then we didn't know that the baby could feel or touch so much new medical technology and and we know that the baby feels pain and um you know everything what we could learn in the 90s we didn't even know in the 70s um but my point is they were extreme circumstances. It's become routine. And what was considered to be, okay, in, uh, under three months has now moved on to not only up to nine months, but now they're saying even after the child is born. And I have to say, I saw something just two yesterday on video that was so upsetting where one woman in an audience, in a, like an auditorium type audience, was, propo was proposing that this could be acceptable even children up to 18 years old if they don't comply um, with standards and don't become a productive member of society that they could be killed uh, and what she was calling abortion. So it's just the craziness of, of, of what we're seeing. Uh, people being lovers of themselves, Israel is in their land, lack of leadership, censorship, you know, um, this one of the staples of, of America is freedom of the press, freedom of speech. You know, people are taking that away. I mean, I, I, I was put in um, social media. Well, that wasn't social media. It was YouTube jail uh, for some things that I said. Uh, and I, I wasn't even trying to be confrontational. It was just reporting some information. Um, wars and rumors of wars. I'm going to show you something there. I'm almost done with this. And knowledge shall increase. I encourage you to, well, let me show you what, what Jesus said. I'm going to go back to the video for a second as we wind this down. Jesus said, when you see these things, know that that is near, even at the doors. This generation shall not pass until all of these things fulfilled. Actually, I should go, pardon me, excuse me, go back to the top. Matthew 24, 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is Israel. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, know the summer is nigh. So the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. It came to be in 1948. Jerusalem became, you know, a complete land in 67. And he said, the generation will not pass away. Well, if you look at the biblical interpretation of a generation, in Psalms it lays it out. It's between 70 and 80 years. So you can do the math. If you want to say 70 to 80 years from 1948, we're right on the cusp today. 
or you want to look at it from 1967. Either way, we're getting very, very close according to what the scripture laid out, that this time is coming. And it says, goes on to say, uh, but that day and hour knows no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as in the days of Noah shall shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For in these days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark. I would say, you know, we're still going on. We're still carrying on. We're eating, drinking, marrying. Life is going on. Um, but yet so many people do not realize that we may be on the cusp of, of the return of Jesus. And I believe we are. What that means in terms of days or years or months, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can look at the signs of what what has been laid out and all of the prophecies and miracles that defy any type of uh, uh, human uh, reasoning or mathematical deduction. Um, so watch, therefore, know that what, what your hour, your Lord does come. Uh, I would encourage you to read not going to go through this now, Romans 1, 18 through 32. This really points to what I believe we are seeing in the world today. Um, and, and basically, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it, you know, the Lord's gone, he's laid all of this out, and we, we can see all of these examples of, of how the world has turned today with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I would say, and, and the Lord says, he is giving them over to a reprobate mind. In other words, he's saying, these are the characteristics of what these people will be in, in, in the end. And the Lord says, you, you, uh, you've seen all these things. The evidence is here, much as what we've laid out, and yet you're still deciding to go your own way, to take your own uh, route with this. Then, then, you know, he's giving you over to that reprobate mind. Wars and rumors of wars. I'm, I'm winding this down. I promise I show you uh, just this area of the world where the red X's are. Um, and, and the world of itself, you know, that, that there's, there's over 50 different nations, some of the biggest nations in the world that are either engaged in war today or on the cusp. Knowledge will increase, Daniel said. Um, so today, consider, or consider this. By the mid-20th century, knowledge had doubled a, a second time. Oh, no, the first time it doubled was the Industrial Revolution, okay? So the, 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 the turn of the uh, 20th century. By mid-century, it had doubled a second time. So, you know, again, just you know, not even 100 years ago, it doubles. 20 years later, it doubles a third time. In, in 1990, it doubled again. In 1995, it doubled again. So you see it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Now, today, knowledge is increasing every 12 hours in a day. So, you know, you, if you, you just think of where the world would have been in the early 20th century, we were still with horse and buggy. That's how we were getting around. And today, not only planes, trains, and automobiles, but we are now man is venturing into space. You know, uh, um, we are not uh, trained as an astronaut. You know, if you have the money and the cloud or the connections, 
you know, you might be able to get in with Virgin Atlantic or, or uh, Bezos or, you know, others. So knowledge is increasing. And, and, and we see that. And that's what Daniel, uh, that's what the angel had showed Daniel. Um, I, I say on this slide, the lack of leadership again. The reason this is important is because when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to be the leader. He's going to provide the solutions that the world is clamoring for. And I would say there is not a strong leader on the world stage today that, that can take charge, that has the credibility, that people say, yeah, you know, that's a man or a woman of, of, of solutions. There are certainly people we admire. Um, but, I, I, you know, and, it, and I would also say even beyond the nations, the, the influences, the, the organizations, the United Nations, the, uh, uh, the World Economic Forum, um, the, uh, um, what, what are some of the others? Uh, the UN, the oh, the Davos Group, um, World Health Organizations. These are all powerful, powerful organizations. In addition to the countries and the nations, and and you know, it, whether you're a believer or not, you know, people know there's something wrong, and we don't have any credible leader providing solutions, which I think is provides the optimal stage for the Antichrist to step in when he does. But I also, you know, I gave you the clock there because I believe we need, everything revolves around Israel. You know, it, all prophecy, everything, Jesus comes, it's all points to Israel. So we need to keep our eyes on the nation of Israel and, and the relationship of the na other nations with Israel. So I, I, and I, I've said this, and I think others have too. If you look at it as a clock, the, the big hand is Israel, the small hand is Jerusalem, and uh, the, the second hand is is the Temple Mount. You can look at it this way too. I believe Joel Rosenberg said this, that the uh, um, Israel is the epicenter of the world. God sees the world, you know, first through Israel. And Jerusalem is the epicenter of the epicenter. And the Temple Mount is the epicenter of the epicenter of the epicenter. It's, it's that. So look, look towards Israel. Look what's going on. So where does that bring us? With all that information, you know, what now? Well, let me say this. Not everyone will be in heaven, despite what people think. Uh, it says this, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which is hell, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in his light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor. Its gates shall not be shut all day. There shall be no might there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means enter into anything that defiles it or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So I show you the image there of what can a man give in return for his own soul as, as written in, in Mark by Jesus. And First John says this, For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? He that believes Jesus is the Son of God. goes on to say here in Mark, Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, wherein he comes in the glory of his Father with his only angels. So for those people who mock Jesus, who make fun of Jesus, 
who, you know, cite him, you know, as he's irrelevant. There will come a time where you will encounter the risen Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And I don't say this, I say this as a warning, because you will. And he says, I, if, you're, if you do not acknowledge me, I will not acknowledge you. And, and I will be ashamed of you, he says. That's, that, that, that's pretty serious stuff. So here you have all of this information. I've given you, I, I've tried to satisfy you from an intellectual standpoint, both you know, from evidence, his, uh, history, eyewitness accounts, scientific accounts, prophetic, historical, political. I, I've shown you what I believe is a vast amount of evidence, and I haven't even touched the surface. There's so much more. But I wanted to give you what I hoped was a, um, a, a full plate of, of different types of foods, if you will, um, uh, you know, to, to satisfy you intellectually. And even if it doesn't satisfy you, at least gives you a curiosity to maybe look in further. And let me say this too. If you're not sure, ask the Lord. Say, God, can you show yourself to me? If you're out there, I promise you, he will do something he loves you so much, he will find a way to get to you if you have a willing heart. Which brings me to ultimately what, what, uh, what Scripture points us to, which is faith. We must have faith. So you can have all the intellectual information in the world, but I'm going to show you what uh, Hebrews says here. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must, be, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith treats, this is not scripture, this is just telling it like it is. Faith treats the things that we hope for as fact. It places confidence today in what has been promised for the future. It is an unchangeable conviction based upon the assurance of God's unchangeable and perfect character that God's promises will be fulfilled. For the unbeliever, seeing is believing. For the believer, believing is seeing. And I show you here that in Romans 1.16, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. So where does that bring us? What, you know, where are you? If, if you are an unbeliever, what, you know, where, where are you? And, and I'm just going to say you know, that inevitably this is the conclusion. I've tried to show you truth, and truth is definitive. It should be qualified, and most importantly, it must be sought. Spin doctoring truth, it's being practiced by everyone in religious, scientific, educational, political spectrums. They want to promote a subjective conclusion rather than an objective analysis. I tried to do my best to provide an objective analysis for you. But just like a court of law, truth at times may be tried and argued for, but in the end, it is absolute. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. My, my saying to you is, what say you as the juror? Mark 8.34 says this, When he called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, as I stated earlier, of him, <clears throat> of him the Son of Man shall also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with his holy angels. I, I know I, I said that scripture earlier, but I, I thought it just bear witness again. Don't be ashamed. You know, uh, you, 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 you must come to a decision one way or another. And no decision is is a decision. So I just, I, I'm going to cite here, if you feel like, if you were not a believer, you know, when we started and you believe that there's enough evidence to show you and you're curious and you want to know Jesus in your heart, it's very simple. It's not complicated. You know, the, the word says that whosoever shall believe in him, uh, let him confess with his mouth and with his heart that Jesus Christ died for my sins and ask him to come into my heart. So I'm going to show you a, a prayer that I, you know, give you an example. You can do it in your own language, however you're comfortable with in the privacy of your own home or with others. You know, if you know somebody else who's a believer, maybe you want to ask them, you know, how do I do this? But this is, this is just an example, but I thought it was good. So I'm just going to read this out loud. Dear Jesus, after hearing the good news of the gospel, I admit that I've sinned by breaking your commandments. I know that I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died upon the cross in my place, saying the price for my sins. I am willing to repent of these sins and to forsake them. Today, I am trusting in you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord of my life. By faith, I am receiving you as Lord. I believe your promises that when I receive you by faith, you will come into my life and give me a new heart, a new birth by the Holy Spirit. Please, Lord Jesus, as the Holy Spirit now come in, uh, send the Holy Spirit now and fill my whole being to take control and lead me from now on. And lead me, um, I'm sorry, lead me from now on in, in his strength. Help me, Lord, to keep trusting you every single day of my life. In your mighty name I pray, Lord Jesus, amen. So that's it. So if you have any questions or comments, and, and if you have accepted the Lord as a result of some of the information that came forth, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus working in you. It's He's the one who, Jesus says, I knock at the door of your heart. You know, will you let me in? Um, so I encourage you to, if you could, if that, if that is you, I'd love to hear it. Uh, email russicoutlook at gmail.com. Um, questions, comments, if you, if you need a church in your area, I'll do my best to find one, you know, based upon the resources I have. But the most important thing you can do is accept Jesus and ask him into your heart. So hopefully I've given you enough information to at least consider this. If you are a Christian and believer, I'm, I'm hoping and believing that I've given you information that may help you minister to people uh, within your realm, in your sphere of influence, in, in, you know, in, in your neighborhood, if you will. Um, so you know, on that note, I'd just like to thank you. I know this has been very long. Uh, I believe, you know, it, it it needed to take place. I just want to thank you for it. Thank you for your time. I, again, if you have any questions or comments, suggestions, I'm, I'm all ears. RussickOutlook at gmail.com. And uh, hope to talk to you soon. And God bless you. And thank you for listening.